And in the meantime, we're doing these, these two messages on prayer and, uh, and on corporate prayer and what drives us to prayer is the first one. As we do these two messages and we have these two services on prayer, I just encourage you this week uh, to take the, the handout that's there and there's kind of homework and direction for each day of the week. And really we're focusing uh, this, this time of focus on prayer on our personal time of prayer. Um, we'll be doing some corporate prayer next week, um, but it's really focusing on our personal relationship with God in terms of prayer. I find for myself there's, there's seasons in my life where prayer takes on a more prevalent or intense role, and I'm sure that a lot of you are similar to me. We go through seasons where we don't pray all that often, we don't pray with that much intensity, and then something happens, or we're reading scripture, or the Holy Spirit prompts us, and then we go through these marvelous seasons in our life where our prayer just seems more frequent, it seems more vibrant, you know, there's just, there's just more, more is kind of the key word, there's just more prayer, more of everything. And I, I realize that the, the circumstances of my life or the season of the life that I in, I'm in drives me to pray, sometimes with more frequency, but also drives me to pray differently. Not just with more frequency, but to pray with more intensity or with increase in various ways. And so I started to think about what are those triggers in my life where there's increased prayer, and then I began to think, what should drive disciples of Christ to pray? And it's a simple question, right? As disciples of Christ, as, as people of God, what is it that should motivate us to pray? What should be driving us to our knees? What should be driving us to our bedsides? What should, what should be driving us to the Word of God to open it up in a prayerful way and just be driven to pray? What are those things? And then as we're praying, what should... What parts of our prayer should be driven to increase? What aspects of our prayer should be um, increasing as we pray? Not ju- again, not just with more frequency, but to increase the quality is not a good word, but the character of our prayer. And so that's what we're looking at today. That's what we're looking at this morning. And so what we're going to do is just look into God's word and see what his spirit teaches us through his people And then we're going to take this week, based on what we hear today and hear from the Lord and hear from the Word today, we're going to take this Monday to Saturday and into Sunday to do the the personal discipleship work that we need to do to see increase in our prayer. Not just in frequency, but in all the qualities in which we pray. So it's a very simple question. What drives me to prayer? What drives you to prayer? What should drive us to prayer? And how should our prayer increase? And so the first one that I see, and it's maybe seems like the most obvious one, is that disciples of Christ are driven to prayer in the face of adversity and need. And it's it's one we hardly even seem to have to remember because it's just sort of our natural response as Christians. In fact, it's our natural response for many people, even as non-Christians and as non-believers. As the old saying goes, there's very few atheists in foxholes, right? When, When the pressure is on, even those who have a very distant or non-relationship with God will suddenly find themselves calling out to God out of need. People who have ignored God or even denied God find themselves in prayer when they face adversity. And that's no different for us as God's children, as Christians. We are, should be driven to prayer in times of need. God wants us to bring our needs to Him. Right? God wants us to call on Him when we face adversity. And God is often using adversity, especially in the Christian life, specifically to cause us to lean into Him. 
And so if we're in adversity or facing adversity or we're in a time of need and we're not driven to prayer, it's actually we're working against God because he wants us to lean in closer to him in those times. And so the first one is very simple. We're, we're driven to prayer in need or adversity. And we see this uh, in the Apostle Paul in the face of danger and adversity in his ministry. He says in Romans 15, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggles by praying to God for me. Pray that I may kept, be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea. I mean, if you've read any of Second Corinthians especially, you know the trials that Paul faced as a, as, a, as a missionary. And so Paul here is saying as he faces adversity, he's driven to prayer. He's having other Christians go to prayer in the face of his adversity. But the example that I really want to focus on here is, is actually the prayer of Hannah, which the Bible doesn't actually record. It doesn't record Hannah's prayer. But we have an example here in this woman Hannah in terms of her great need in how our prayer should increase. Again, not just in frequency, but in other qualities. In 1 Samuel 1.10, it says, In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Well, who's Hannah? Why is she going to the Lord weeping bitterly in great anguish? Hannah's husband, Elkanah, had two wives. And uh, that's descriptive, not prescriptive. The Bible's not saying that we should all go out and get two wives. Uh, But this man had two wives, okay? And the other wife was Penaniah. And Penaniah basically bore many sons and daughters, and Hannah couldn't bear any. And so for years, Hannah could not give her husband a son or a daughter. And for years, when they went up to Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle was built before the temple, Elkanah would bring the fatted calves and he would bring the rams for the sacrifice and the feast and he would portion out the sacrifice and then portion out the feast. And when when it was portioned out, he would give the portion um, to Peninnah he would give her portion for her and all her sons. And so her plate was sort of heaping with food. And then for Hannah, traditionally, she would just get one portion, her own portion. But he always gave her a double portion because he loved her, the scripture says. But here is Hannah, and she is in need. She is in trial. She is weeping bitterly because she cannot bear a son, and she wants to bear a son or a daughter for her husband. And so years after years, she cannot stand the gloating of her rival. And finally, she refuses to eat, it says in verse 8. She, won't eat, she stops eating. She stops participating. She's just done. And she goes to the doorpost of the temple, and it says, In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now, that's the vow portion of her prayer. And again, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm not suggesting that we pray saying God, like negotiating with God. If you do this, then I'll, I'll do something else. That's not the point. In fact, if you look in Ecclesiastes and Judges and Leviticus and James and a whole bunch of other places, there's lots of reasons why God says you, it's dangerous and you don't pray this way. But you see Hannah's need. That's the point. She's saying, "Just I'm, I'm, this is my need, Lord. I, I desire a son. And that son turns out to be Samuel, so it all works out in the end. It's great. But when we're facing adversity, when we're driven to pray, we pray with more frequency, but we also pray here, you realize, with more clarity and more specifically and with more necessity in the things we're praying for. Ian Bounds, tremendous pastor, wrote an incredible books and letters on prayer. He said, desire is mute. 
meaning our need or our desire is silent. But prayer is heard. Without desire, prayer is only a mumble of meaningless words. Without prayer, desire remains unanswered. And so we are meant to come in our time of need, not just to pray with more frequency, but to pray with more clarity, more specifically, and with more necessity to God. And so you think about your own prayers. Have they just become kind of a meaningless mumble of words? Have they kind of just become a routine where there's nothing specific that you're praying for? Are you praying specifically? And I do this. I realize in seasons of my life, I will go for months and realize, you know, God hasn't really, you know, I've been, I've been wanting this. I've been thinking this is the direction my life is going or this is what I could see happening. And, and I haven't seen God answering that prayer. And then I realize I haven't been praying it. <laughs> I haven't been praying the prayer. So, so, you know, God's waiting for me to pray so that he can be a good father to give. Secondly, disciples are driven to pray when tempted and even fallen in sin. So rather than keeping us apart from God, temptation and sin should cause us to flee to God. And the example here, and can only use it for temptation because he didn't sin, is Jesus. And I'll go to some other examples. But, but Jesus himself prayed when facing temptation. And quite often we can think that when we're in seasons of our life where we are far from God because of sin, or when we are under specific temptations, that might drive us away from prayer, that God doesn't want our presence when, that, when we're feeling that way about ourselves. But in fact, it's when we are tempted and even fallen in sin that we are driven to pray. Jesus, when he was most strongly tempted, I think, he was tempted at the very beginning of his ministry to not not even start. And then he was tempted again most intently at the end of his ministry to not finish. And so you have Jesus in the desert. In Matthew 4, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And as Jesus is in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, Fasting and praying, it says the tempter came to him and said, and he goes into the temptations of the devil. But it's when we are tempted that we are driven to pray with the most intensity, fasting and prayer even. And then on the other end of Jesus' ministry in the garden, do we have any greater example of the need for prayer during temptation than the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the Garden of Gethsemane? It says in Matthew 26, 36 to 44, there's three times Jesus prays, it says, his soul is very sorrowful even unto death in verse 38. And then in verse 39 makes it really clear his temptation to set down the cup. Father, if this cup can pass from me, this is the temptation of Christ Jesus because he knows he can call legions of angels. He knows that this is something that he has chosen to do, not something he has to do. And so the temptation there in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he is driven to pray three times and sweats great drops of blood, in the finality of that prayer, in verse 42, he resolves to do the will of the Father. So it's when we're tempted as disciples of Christ that we should be driven to prayer. And although Jesus did not sin, Jesus can pray for those that did fall into sin. Jesus praying for Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Don't forget that Satan and his forces don't rest from their evil scheming and interference. As one elder told me this last week. That's what we have to remember. Satan is seeking to sift us like wheat and it is prayers of intercession and our prayers that prevent that sifting from happening. Then we look at Paul praying for the Colossians in Colossians 1. 
He says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God for you. And he goes on to say, so that you might live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. He's praying for the lifestyle of these Christians that they may be kept away from temptation and from sin. When we are tempted and and even find ourselves caught in sin, we may be further tempted to not pray, but God wants to hear from us. That's when we should be driven to pray. And again, not just pray with more frequency, but when we are in that temptation, in that sin, when we saw Jesus in his temptation, we are praying with more humility and more intensity because we realize that we are not as righteous, we are not as perfect, we are not as holy, that God has more for us. And so we pray with humility, but we pray with intensity, knowing that our soul depends on the answer to that prayer. God proclaims to Solomon at the dedication of the temple. He says in 2 Chronicles, he says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. This is a prayer of confession. This is a a prayer during sin and temptation. When I hear them from, I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will hear their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. And that's at the dedication of the temple. What's the temple? Who's the temple in the new covenant? We're the temple. We have access to the Father directly. We don't have to be in a specific place with a specific sacrifice. But here in Second Chronicles, God says, this is my nature. If my people will humble themselves and pray and seek me, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin. As disciples of Christ, we are driven to pray with greater humility and greater intensity when we're facing temptation and sin. That is not the time to turn away from prayer. It's the time to lean in. Thirdly, disciples are driven to prayer when our relationship with God has become cold or distant. God is always nearby. The kingdom of God is always at hand. God will never leave us nor forsake us. The Spirit of Christ dwells within us. That is always true, but we don't always feel the truth of that, do we? Right? There are times when our relationship with God feels cold and distant. And again, it feels like in those times when we pray the least and we may actually feel like we shouldn't be going to prayer because we just don't have enough worked up enough emotion or enough love for God. But it's exactly when we feel cool towards God or when our relationship feels distant that that should be a trigger in a disciple of Christ to be driven towards greater prayer. And we see this over and over again in the Psalms and in the prophets. Books of the Bible that speak to times when God seemed distant from his people, when the follower of God did not feel the warmth of his spirit or hear his voice often. In those times, David and Solomon and Job and Isaiah and Daniel and all these others would come to the Lord in prayer and intensity. Psalm 42 says, As a deer longs for the streams of water, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. I say, when will I be able to go and appear in God's presence? This is the prayer of someone who wants to be in the presence of God, isn't feeling the presence of God, but longs for that presence, and so he prays. Psalm 63, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land. Isaiah 26, my soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. There's a yearning for God. And so as disciples of Christ, when we feel distant, and I don't know where you're at. I mean, we all go through these sort of mountaintop and valley experiences as we walk with God. His truth never changes. His walk with us never changes. But our walk with him 
moves around. We're closer and farther. So I don't know where you're at, but, but disciples of Christ, followers of God, should be driven to prayer. And how is prayer increasing? How are we praying more? And I think the thing in this prayer, when, when you're distant from God and you're coming to God in prayer, the thing to remember as we pray, no doubt with increased frequency, but increased intimacy. And it's in these prayers when we are remembering that we are not praying for a promise, but we're praying to a promiser. And the example that I want to use here, apart from those prayers that I mentioned, is Jacob, very specifically. Jacob was the one who wrestled with the angel, the son of the angel in the night, wrestled with God, basically, in the night, until he finally broke his hip. (laughs) And he had to give up and ask for his blessing. But Jacob wrestled not with a promise, but with a promiser, right? The relationship with Jacob and his God was so intimate that they wrestled through the night hand-to-hand combat. And what Jacob knew with intimate clarity is that as he went before God, he was going before, not as asking for promises, not just asking for needs, not just asking for this sort of mystical force to work. He was praying with, he was wrestling with a promiser, a real person. And so when our relation, it's, it's the relationship with the promiser that secures the promises. And so when our relationship feels distant from God, when we go to prayer, we pray with more intimacy, but we pray with more realization that we are praying to a person who will wrestle with us and force us to deal with the consequences of who he is. Fourthly, God's people, disciples, are driven to prayer when we experience the greatness of God's love and bre- blessing. And this is important to remember too because prayer is broken weeping and it is need in the face of adversity and it is wrestling with God when we're cool and distance. Prayer is broken weeping, but it is also joyful dancing. Prayer can groan as well as sing. The example that I turn to here is Moses and Miriam after God rescues Israel from the Egyptian army. They pass through the sea and the Egyptian army is destroyed behind them. And as Moses, it says literally in Exodus 15, singing, Moses is singing to God, Miriam is dancing. It says, then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. And it was a song of prayer for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver. He's hurled into the sea and the Lord is my strength and my defense and he's become my salvation. And it is a song of joy to the Lord. And Miriam is dancing as they sing. It says, Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sisters took a timbrel in her hand and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. And Miriam excuse me, sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. And so prayer, what drives us to prayer is the recognition of God's blessing. And when God does great things in our life, the disciple of God should be driven to prayer. And so again, as we go through our lives, God is blessing us here and God is blessing us there and God is coming through in amazing ways. And when God delivers on his promises the way he's promised to do, that should drive us to prayer as well. We should be praying with joy and singing and thanksgiving to the Lord. And we have the example of Mary as well in Luke 1. It says, Mary said, My soul is glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant." And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And and then it goes on for like six more verses. Just Mary singing her joy to the Lord. 
The joy of God's blessing in all of our life can drive us to prayer just as much as need and temptation and adversity. So on on one hand, when we're facing struggles, the disciples of God are driven to prayer. And then on the other hand, when God is blessing and he is rewarding us and giving us, showing us his mercy, that also drives us to prayer. And it should be filled with joy. And it's not just the women, of course. There's many psalms rejoice as well. And King David, most of all, is probably the most dramatic example of of this singing and dancing before the Lord, right? In 2 Samuel, when the ark is coming back to Jerusalem, wearing a linen ephod, it says David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. Verse 16, leaping and dancing before the Lord, right? When's the last time you leapt and danced before the Lord? Right? Sometimes there's just a little bit too much prancing and not enough dancing. Right? Or there's too much dancing and not enough prancing. I'm not sure which one it is. Right? But you see how the people of God respond in joy and rejoicing with timbrels and dancing before the Lord. And maybe we're just too Baptist to dance. I don't know. But the example of Scripture here is clear. Right? We are as disciples of Christ, as people of God, to be driven to rejoicing before God when he blesses us. In response to God's love and goodness, we should be driven to prayer, not just in more frequency, but with more rejoicing. Is the level of our rejoicing in our prayer increasing when we pray? Do we just pray more often or do we pray more joyfully as well? When was the last time we really rejoiced in prayer? With a big smile. You know, maybe even just tapping your toe if that's as far as you can go. But with joy in our prayer. Disciples of Christ should pray with increasing rejoicing. Fifthly, disciples of Christ are driven to pray out of compassion and concern for others. When we see the brokenness of the world and the absence of hope of Christ and salvation in those around us, this should break our own hearts and drive us to prayer out of compassion and concern. Compassion and concern for the world and the people around us should be a trigger for disciples of Christ to pray. This should drive us to prayer. And again, we go to Jesus for an example over Jerusalem and the lost in Matthew 23. I mean, we could go other places, but this just one. While he is on the hillside by Jerusalem, overlooking his people. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Or Jesus for the disciples and the whole world and all who would follow him in John 17. It's his longest recorded prayer. And when you read John 17, you read it, you realize the motivation for Jesus to pray as he does is his compassion and his love for his disciples and for his people and for the world. And then in Paul, in Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, praying for the spiritual well-being of his fellow believers and the strength of their faith that they be filled with the fullness of God. And there's nothing more precious he could pray for those that he cared about, that they would be filled with the Spirit of God. And he prayed that they would come to know God and never fall away from God out of his concern and his compassion for the lost. He says that they may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God in Philippians. And so as God's people, as disciples of Christ, are we driven to pray out of a broken heart for the world that we see around us? Are we driven to pray out of a broken heart of compassion for those that we see in need to drive ourselves not again to pray only more frequently, but to pray with a broken heart, to pray more fervently and to pray more passionately? How much more passionately could you pray than Christ himself praying over his people, over the city of Jerusalem, where his temple stood, knowing 
that they would slay him, that so many of them would be lost. As disciples of Christ, we are driven to pray more, but more fervently and more passionately out of compassion and a broken heart for the world. Some other triggers. Verse uh, number six here. Disciples are driven to prayer when we experience the tension between scriptures we read and the world we experience. This is a tricky one, and I use Daniel for this example. This is what happens. As a disciple of Christ, you're reading scriptures. You're reading the Bible. You're reading how God intended the world to be. You're reading how God intends for us to live in the world. And as you read the scriptures and you read how God intends things, you then lift your eyes from the scripture and you look at the world and you realize that there is a great disconnect between the world as God intended it in the, in the Bible and the world as it actually is. And as you go through the scriptures, especially the prophets, you will find that they are constantly in prayer out of a disconnect between how God's people and how God's world is supposed to be and how God's world actually is. And that disconnect, every time it's encountered by the prophets, every time it's encountered by God's people, should drive us to prayer. Daniel's my example. In Daniel chapter 9, here's the the deal with Daniel. He's in captivity for the 70 years that God promised in Jeremiah. And, And Daniel is actually reading the scrolls. He's reading Jeremiah. And as he's reading Jeremiah, he knows that God's people are not where they're supposed to be that this is not how God intended it, that that God is actually going to be delivering the people and Daniel is burdened by what he reads in Jeremiah and the captivity that they are in that is not how God intended them to be, but how this captivity has not changed the hearts of its people and so they're not out of captivity yet. And Daniel knows they're not supposed to be in captivity, they're supposed to be coming out of captivity. And so he starts praying and he says, I turned to the Lord God and I pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord God and confessed... You're holy and righteous and we are sinful and disobedient and you made us your people and we rebelled and went astray and you're a redeemer and yet we remained unredeemed and a whole bunch of other things he confessed there. And it goes on and on for most of chapter 9. And Daniel is driven to pray because what he's experiencing in the world is not the full consummation of God's plan. And so he's driven to repent and driven to call on God to complete the work that God has begun. In other words, as Jesus simplified for us, In his prayer, how does it begin? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how Jesus simplified it, right? We are to be driven to prayer when we realize that God's will is not done on earth as it is in heaven. There's this big disconnect. And the tension is that we are not as holy as we should be, and even far worse, that God is not as glorified as he must be. Missions and outreach are necessary because the world does not glorify God. If the world glorified God as it intended, then we wouldn't have to do missions. Mission agencies and outreach programs and all that stuff would stop because God would be glorified as He should be. Because the world is not as it should be, because there is this tension between what God intends and what the world is, then we should be driven to prayer. Daniel's prayer is that the world, which is Israel for him, is out of sync with God. God is not worshipped as He should be. And we are sinful and unrighteous, which we... We're never meant to be. That's not how God created us and what we need to be redeemed from. And so this tension between the scriptures we read and the world that we experience should drive us to prayer with more frequency, yes, but also more earnestly. From verses 3 to 19 in Daniel 9 there, you're going to read one of the most earnest prayers in scripture. Daniel is begging God. He says, listen to our prayers. Hear our pleas for mercy. Incline your ear. Make your face shine. 
He says, hear, forgive, pay attention, act. He is praying in desperation to God because the world is not as the world should be. And so as disciples of Christ, when we see the state of the world compared to scriptures, Daniel and all God's people should be driven to pray. And I use the word here with more agency. I could say more effectively. That trusting that our prayers are heard. Notice what Daniel did there. I'll just say it again. At the end of that prayer in chapter 9, this is how he prays so boldly to God. He says, God, listen to our prayers. Hear our pleas for mercy. Incline your ear. Make your face shine. Hear us. Forgive us. Basically, pay attention and act, God. When's the last time you prayed to God like that? Right? As God's people, as you're driven to prayer, are you praying that God would act with more agency? In other words, more effectiveness. That he would have agency in the world. That our prayers would have agency with God. That he would act according to his purposes as we pray. And we see the effective nature of Daniel's prayer. When he prayed that way, with more agency, asking God to have more agency and for his prayers to have more agency? Because the only thing that happened after Daniel prayed that is the angel Gabriel showed up. Wow. (laughs) Do you imagine praying with that much agency? That Gabriel shows up and says, yeah, Daniel, uh, God heard your prayer. I'm here to tell you what's going on. Yeah, our prayers are so weak by comparison, it seems, right? In those seasons of our life, when we as disciples of God are not driven to prayer, we don't think they're effective. But here we have the example of God's people that pray with such agency that God will hear our prayers, that he will fulfill his promises. So disciples of God are are driven to pray with more agency when they see the disconnect between the scriptures and the world. And finally, God's people, and there's many more, but we can't get to them all. God's people are driven to prayer when needs arise or present themselves immediately. And uh, this is another one that came actually from one of the elders. I sent this out, what I was going to talk about, and one of the elders responded about this part of their prayer life that they've been trying to increase, that they want more of, they want more immediacy. And a lot of times we're going through our day as disciples of Christ and as followers of God and we're talking to a friend or we're after church in the lobby and and a need in our life or a need in their life comes up in the conversation and we'll say something like, I'll pray for you or I'll pray about that. Or we're on the phone and we hear something. We say, well, I'll pray for that. And then we hang up the phone or we walk away from the lobby and we realize a few days later we never did pray for it. In fact, we completely forgot about it. And if the person in the lobby the next week mentions that thing you were talking about and you can't remember what it was, they're thinking, oh, did you really pray about it? Because you already can't remember what it was that we were talking about. And it's embarrassing. And we realize our weakness in prayer that we don't pray as often as we say we're going to pray. And so the point here is that the disciples of God need to pray with more immediacy, with more spontaneity in the moment. We should be driven to prayer as soon as we hear a need. You think of Nehemiah. We did a series on Nehemiah a little while ago. Nehemiah 2, 4 to 5. This is what prayers are like. One of the amazing things about the prayers of the Bible is that very few of them are very long. You can pray almost every prayer of the Bible in under 30 seconds. There's a few exceptions, right? Most prayers are very short. So when we think of praying, we think, well, you know, well, we've got to go away and have, you know, 30 minutes of eloquent poetry for God to hear. No, that's not what virtually any of the prayers in the Bible are. In Nehemiah 2, 4-5, when he is facing the king and his concern and his compassion, a, a disciple of God who is driven out of compassion and out of necessity to pray fits the bill perfectly. 
He's before the king as the cupbearer. And the king says to me, what is it that you want? It says, then I prayed to the God in heaven and I answered the king. Like, how long could that prayer be? Right? The king just asked me a question. God, you got it. Answer, you know, answer the king. Right? Like, that's the spontaneity of the prayer. That Nehemiah is driven immediately and spontaneously to prayer in the immediate need that he is in when it comes up. Or for others' immediate needs. Jesus, the centurion, you remember, the centurion comes and he, he, he asks Jesus to simply immediately ask for the healing of his servant. He came, he said, Jesus, my servant is sick. And Jesus is like willing to go to the servant. And the centurion says, you don't have to come. You don't have to make a big deal out of this, Jesus. You've heard my need. I know what you do. You just have to say the word and it'll happen. We can pray spontaneously and immediately, literally a word, and God will hear our prayers. The centurion says, My servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, Shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. You know, we can do that in the lobby. We can do that on the phone. As soon as you hear a need, it's like, I don't have to come over there and pray with you for half an hour. I can just pray for you right now on the word, on the phone. I can just pray for you right now in the lobby. Disciples of Christ, followers of God, need to be driven to prayer, not just with more frequency, but with more spontaneity, with more immediacy. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you, Philippians 1.3. Every time he remembers that church, he prays, he thanks God for them. As soon as they come to mind, prayer just happens. Someone shares about a personal struggle or a friend, then we can pray. An opportunity somebody has, a ministry opportunity, a job opportunity, whatever it is, you can pray right then. A parent shares something about their children, you can pray. News of an event in somebody's life, a new job, pregnancy, whatever it is, these are some of the examples that they gave, you can pray for that immediately. So what should drive a disciple to prayer are the presenting or arising needs in our own lives and others. And as disciples, we should be driven to pray with more spontaneity and immediacy in the moment with the people that are present. And there's many others I can sure that you can think of, really good ones that I missed. We could say that we are driven to prayer more faithfully, that our prayer we should pray more persistently, that we should pray more reverently. There's all kinds of words we can use here, right? And you can go to scriptures and you can find examples of all of them. Bottom line is, in our prayer life, as disciples of Christ, we should be driven to prayer, not just with more frequency, but with more adverbs, right? There's a whole bunch of adverbs that we can attach to our prayer. And I confess that I go through seasons where there are very few of those adverbs, right? I go through seasons where I'm not praying more joyfully, where I'm not praying more fervently, where I'm not praying more earnestly, where I'm not praying more desperately, where I'm not praying more specifically, where I'm not praying out of necessity, where I'm not praying more compassionately. All those adverbs just kind of get beat down over time and it just becomes prayer. But that's not how God would have his people pray. So there's many other things that should drive us to prayer. We could spend a week or a month just talking about this aspect of prayer and what the adverbs are that should drive us to prayer. And this week, as you consider that question, you can fill in your own blank because I don't have the answer for you. So you've got the insert, you've got the homework. What drives you to prayer? What should be driving you to prayer right now in this season in your life? And then what is the adverb? 
Is it, should I be praying more passionately? What is it that God is telling me I've been missing? Should I be praying more earnestly? Should I be praying more reverently? How should I be praying more? Not just more frequently, but more everything. How does all my prayer increase? What should drive us to prayer? What does drive us to prayer? And we just bring it back to the cross. One final point on prayer. The amazing thing as we go into this week of prayer, and I hope you spend the personal time to do the the weekly homework. The most amazing thing about prayer, we can talk about all the prayer we should do and what it should be, but we root everything in our prayer about this reality. The reason we can even talk about prayer, the reason prayer can be any of these things, is because that cross is empty. Ephesians 2, 18. Paul says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It's because of what Christ has done on the cross that we even have this amazing privilege that our prayers have agency with God. That we can pray and it doesn't have to go through a sacrifice. It doesn't have to go through a priest or a high priest. It doesn't have to go through a temple. It doesn't have to go through a pope. Our prayers to God go directly to God. We have access through Christ Jesus to the Father. It's because of what Christ has done that we have this privilege of prayer. And so as a church, we must be a people that are sustained and empowered by prayer. It's a simple truth. God's people live by the Spirit and by prayer. And it's an old truth. And it's been true as long as God's people have been called His people. They have lived by prayer on their knees before Him. And it's a simple truth. It's not hard to remember. If in doubt, if in trouble, if in weakness, if in fear, if in need, if blessed, if victorious, if tempted, whatever it is, the truth is always pray. Prayer is always the answer for the disciple of Christ. So let's be a people. Let's be a church that's driven to pray this week in greater frequency, but with greater immediacy, with greater clarity, with greater agency, with greater humility, with greater fervency, with greater earnesty, with greater dependency, joyfully, reverently. You pick your adverb. Let's pray more in every way and be driven to prayer by these things as God's people. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these examples. It's hard sometimes to step back and compare ourselves to Scripture. It's hard sometimes to step back and simply be introspective about the last few weeks or the last few months, even the last few years of our lives. But that's what you do. You confront us by your Holy Spirit. You hold up the mirror of your word. And having looked in the mirror, we don't just walk away and forget what we look like, says James. People of God look in the mirror and remember what they saw in the mirror, and they start to make changes. They be transformed by your Spirit. So, Lord, we're asking you. We're asking you that you would transform our prayer lives. There's lots of other things we could talk about, but this week we're talking about prayer. And so, Lord, as we go away and we think about this, and your Holy Spirit brings these words to our remembrance, I pray that our prayer lives would be inspired, literally, by your Holy Spirit this week. And I pray that as we come together next week, we would come ready to pray more in all of these ways and that your name would be glorified and that we would be rejuvenated and redeemed and restored as your people, that we would be empowered by your prayer, that we would be a people in who you inhabit our prayers. 
and it would be the driving engine of this church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.